Good morning to you. In 1875, William Ernest Henley penned a short poem that has left a very long shadow. At 16, Henry lost his left leg to tuberculosis, and uh, he was then told he would lose his right leg to ongoing complications. But young William decided that he would travel all the way from Margate in England to Edinburgh in Scotland to solicit the services of the esteemed surgeon Dr. Joseph Lister. And after multiple surgical interventions on that right foot, Dr. Lister was able to save young Hendley's right leg. The lad lay in recovery in the infirmary, and Henry penned Invictus, which goes like this. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years friend finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. You've probably heard that before, at least pieces of it. Um, the last two lines were famously recited by Captain Renault to Humphrey Bogart's character in Casablanca, if you've seen the film. Uh, portions of that poem were employed by Winston Churchill when he attempted to rouse the English House of Commons under the Nazi blitz. While incarcerated in, in Robben Island, Nelson Mandela recited words of this poem, parts of this poem, to his fellow prisoners as they struggled to find dignity under the uh, apartheid tyranny. Uh, this poem was a source of encouragement to American prisoners of war in the Vietnam War. Admiral James Stockdale remembers being passed this last stanza written in rat droppings on toilet paper from his fellow POW David Hatcher. And the Burmese opposition leader and Nobel Peace Prize winner Ong Song Suu Kyi said, quote, This poem inspired my father, Ong San and his contemporaries during their struggle as well. So, so why has this poem resonated with so many? I think clearly because of the last conclusion stanza. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. What is Henley saying? He's saying, it's my life. But is it? We may be inspired by such sentiment, but is that salient, cogent, indeed relevant for the Christian? It's my life. That's the question we've been addressing over these past few Sundays together in 1 Corinthians 6. And today is our final installment of our assessment. It's my life, or is it? It's my life, or is it? And so if you would turn with me in your pew Bibles to page 1214, we're going to turn in the Word of God to 1 Corinthians 6. Pew Bibles 1214, Word of God 1 Corinthians 6. And as you turn in the Word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that Word and ask Him to bless our time together today. Father, 
You have given us Your Word by Your Spirit through Your holy apostles and prophets. No word was spoken by man, but they were moved by the Holy Spirit, we are told in Peter's epistle. We're told from Paul in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is inspired by God and useful for correction, reproof, rebuke, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Jesus tells us that man does not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. The psalmist tells us that we should hide your word in our heart that we might not sin against you. And so, Lord, as you said in the Old Testament that you will put your word into the prophets, we ask today that we would find it profitable looking at your word in 1 Corinthians 6. And we pray that you might help us to make any adjustments in our attitude, perspective, or indeed our walk this week, because James tells us that we ought not just be hearers of the word, but doers. So please help us to reorientate and radically redirect our thinking, that we would change our walking, that you would be glorified in how we live our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Word of God says in 1 Corinthians 6, beginning at verse 12, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. But the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and He will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Uh, shall then, shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who's joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside of his body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Now over these past several Sundays in September, we've already surveyed six of our ten principles in regards to this particular passage. And if you haven't been with us, feel free to look them up online, but we'll just quickly review where we've been. Uh, number one, we need to understand that as believers, we're not our own. We've been bought with a price. Number two, we need to understand that as believers, we're now temples of the Holy Spirit, and so we ought to glorify God with our bodies, not merely gratify ourselves in our basest instincts. Number three, we need to understand that our bodies are made for resurrection, not insurrection. Number four, we need to understand that our freedom in Christ frees us to honor Jesus, not live in bondage to our passions. Number five, we need to understand that our freedom should not be misused so that we fall into patterns of addiction and affliction. Number six, we need to understand that what we do with our bodies is not inconsequential or incidental to Jesus. 
And all of that brings us to point seven today, which will finish out our looking at this topic, uh, point seven through ten today. Point seven is this, it's in your outlines. We need to understand that what we do with our bodies has a deep impact on others. What we do with our bodies has a deep impact on others. We need to understand, as God's people, that what we do with our bodies has a deep impact on others. We see this very clearly. Look at verse 16. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. You see, apparently the Corinthian Christians, at least some Corinthian Christians, saw the sexual as primarily physical. That's all that sex was. It was primarily physical in their thinking. Uh, Sexual uh, intimacy uh, was, was merely the physical linkage that lasted no longer than the throes of a moment's passion. Now, you've got to remember, most of the Corinthians were raised in, 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 in Gentile homes. Their background was paganism, not biblicism. Most of them had a very minimal understanding of the Old Testament because they were new in Christ and they were just learning the Old Testament. And so, Paul has to enlighten them against what their culture says with what the Bible says when it comes to this topic. Particularly as it pertains to something as personal and intimate and emotional as sexual intimacy. And here's where he takes them. He takes them very back to the very first book in the Bible, to some of the very first chapters of the Bible. He takes them to Genesis 2, 24. As it is written in Genesis, the two shall become one flesh. You see, the Bible teaches that the the conjugal is not just physical, but it's more in total. And our culture misses this. The Bible teaches that the conjugal is more than just the physical. It's more in total. You see, Paul writes, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two become one flesh. Now, one flesh on its own could be interpreted, well, that's just physical. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul tacks on a very important addendum. Verse 17. You might want to highlight it because it speaks into the kind of connection in verse 16. But he who's joined to the Lord becomes what? One spirit with him. So Paul is saying that there is more than just the physical when we engage in the conjugal. Sexual intimacy affords an intense intimacy because it is a total intimacy. Something physical, something spiritual, something relational, something emotional happens in this particular connection in the human condition. Now, now many people today would say, no, 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 no. The Corinthians are right in their understanding. Sex is just physical. But friends, even science says it's more than that. I'm going to give you a little science here for a moment. In, 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 in sexual intimacy, the scientists have told us that sexual intimacy alters our brain chemistry. You can prove it. It's very, very clear. Uh, we get flooded with the pleasure hormone dopamine, and it releases feelings of euphoria. The surge of dopamine strengthens the pathways that regulate reward-motivated behavior in the brain, and we want more and more of this and more and more of this person. 
We start to want to be with this person more and more and more the more dopamine is released in our brains. Then our brain gets a a hit of epinephrine, uh, the adrenaline hormone, uh, and and we start to have this strong emotional surge, this, this adrenaline surge. And then our hypothalamus goes into overdrive, and it releases this stuff called oxycontin. Or, excuse me, oxytocin. Oxytocin, different. Uh, your uh, bad pain doctor that gives you oxycontin. Uh, and you probably don't want to do that. Uh, the hypothalamus goes into overdrive and it releases oxytocin. And the oxytocin, it, it wipes out what you normally have, which are very high cortisone levels. And, and cortisone uh, is a major stress hormone, isn't it? And so this surge of, of, of oxytocin suppressing the cortisol has the effect of making you feel very relaxed, very content, and very sociable. This is followed by the release of serotonin and something very hard to pronounce, I'll try once, something called dehydroepiandrosterone, which we will now call DHEA, as they do. The the serotonin uh, regulates our mood, and so when we get this serotonin, uh, we feel peaceful, we feel happy, we feel hostful. And then the DHEA acts as an antidepressant. And so clearly, sexual intimacy is more than just physical. It deeply impacts us on a biological, neurological, and indeed emotional level, doesn't it? It does. Sex is not just physical, it's clearly emotional. And science also is giving us a window today into the reality that sex is more than just physical, biochemical, and emotional. Surprisingly to many scientists, recent research hints that something is happening on a spiritual level. Because now that we can take pictures of our brain and we can take pictures of what's happening when people are under different environments and we see different things lighting up in the brain, lo and behold, we find that research is telling us that that sexual activity lights up the very same areas of the brain as when patients meditate or have other spiritual activities and connections. And so what neurologists can dissect with big words, psychologists can dissect with simpler terms. In my research for this sermon, I came across an article in Psychology Today. It's not a Christian publication, but it's a medical one. And the article was entitled this. Again, not a Christian publication, Psychology Today, How Casual Sex Can Affect Our Mental Health. Interesting article. And so researchers at Binghamton University, not a Christian university, studied the effects of our hookup culture on the participants of the hookup culture. And the article stated this, quote, common reactions to casual sex include regret, disappointment, confusion, embarrassment, guilt, and low self-esteem. Although other individuals certainly reported feeling proud, nervous, excited, desirable, or wanted. Now listen to this, what they put in parentheses. Feelings tended to be more positive before and during a hookup and much more negative End quote. Thus, whatever euphoria God prohibited sexual intimacy brings, and there's pleasure in sin for a season or we wouldn't do it, right? So for whatever euphoria God prohibited sexual intimacy brings, it is short-lived and there tends to be lingering consequences emotionally that even secular medical psychological practitioners can clearly evaluate based on the data. 
The article goes on to say this, quote, researchers examining the mental health associations of, of hookup sex report that participants who were not depressed before they engaged in hookup sex showed more depressive symptoms and loneliness after casual sex. Again, secular publication. Well, the Bible had already told us that in the very first book of the Bible, that we're messing with things that were deeper than we understand. In Genesis 2.24, God describes the, the only God-ordained and indeed very first one-flesh relationship, the one sanctioned by God, the one arranged by God, the one blessed by God. And God is careful to inform us of this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, and he'll hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, perhaps the best-known translation of this passage is the Old King James, and it says that he will leave and cleave. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, and he will cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Now, cleaving is the word debak in the Hebrew. It has the idea of a, of a permanent gluing, a binding, a welding, if you will. Now, if I weld two pieces of, of, of metal together, and I get a mechanical separator because I want them to come apart, I can't get a clean break ever again. I will not get two perfectly clean pieces of metal coming off. I will get some of each pulling into the other. There will be some of each scarred and bonded and pulled into the other. That's how it works when you weld metal and you separate a tight weld. And that's the term God's using, this gluing, this binding, this welding. Something is transferred in some deep way from one to the other that's hard to walk away from. You see, when we're sexually intimate, the Bible says there's a union. Now, not necessarily a marriage, but definitely a union. The two become one flesh, and since that union is just for personal fulfillment in a hookup culture, and just for a mere moment, when we try to extract ourselves from that union, we find that to some extent, we can't. And that's why past relationships that have taken on a, a, an unauthorized sexual nature are so hard for people to get over. And, and that's why folks find those relationships so emotionally confusing when they've gone down that path together. Because sex is more than just physical. It's unavoidably, undeniably, and somewhat inexplicably intertwined emotionally, relationally, neurologically, biochemically, and even spiritually. It just is. It just is. And this is why the Lord Jesus tells us what God has joined together. Let no man separate. God designed sexual intimacy to be a very special kind of intimacy. It was designed to bind us. But lust blinds us. And we do things that are very hard to get past. The gift of sex was designed to join a husband and wife together in a very special kind of closeness where they can be totally transparent with each other. They can be vulnerable and available. The Bible says they can be naked and unashamed. But Satan understands that this powerful, spiritual, neurological, biochemical cocktail, it can be weaponized. And it can be shaken into a Molotov cocktail. And it can, if hurled indiscriminately, it'll burn us deeply. He knows that too. And so 
as a society, we've been experimenting with this thing called free love since the 60s, haven't we? Kind of a new thing. For most of us, it's all we know. We haven't been alive since before the 60s. I was born in 74. But some of you remember before it was that way. Okay? Since the 60s, we've been experimenting with free love. And one thing I can tell you, I, I can't tell you the direct correlation, but I can tell you, clinicians tell us we have more depression, more anxiety, more insomnia, and more mental maladies than we've ever had. I don't know expressly what's the connection, but it is true that the two arose as twin phenomena in the American saga. Interesting. Very interesting. So no, having sex is not the same thing, friends, as eating food. They were saying, wrongly, food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach is meant for food. And, and Paul has to correct them with saying, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take a member of Christ and make it a member of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So we must, and the so is a causal connective. It means what do you do with this? Since all that's true, so we must what? Flee sexual immorality. Not flirt, flee sexual immorality. We need to understand that what we do with our bodies has a deep impact on others. Turn with just, for just a moment, turn on the Word of God, leave your finger in Corinthians, go to the right, go to 1 Thessalonians 4.3. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 is on page 1257. 1257, 1 Corinthians 4.3. One Thessalonians four, three through eight. One Thessalonians four, three through eight sets us straight that what we do with our bodies has deep impact on others. So we need to steward our bodies carefully. The word of God says in one Thessalonians four, three through eight, for this is the will of God. Your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. That no Christian transgresses and wrongs his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. And we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us as Christians to impurity but to holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. That is, what we do with our bodies, guess what? It impacts our brother. You see, the Bible says we can wrong one another in this matter. Uh, we can create an unbiblical union and then this other person who either needs Jesus or needs to be encouraged by us to shine for Jesus if they're a believer is, is enveloped in a kind of darkness that we have harnessed. Socially, emotionally, physically, physiologically, psychologically, neurologically, biochemically, and spiritually, we have played with unauthorized fire to turn in your Bibles back to the left all the way to the beginning of the Bible to Leviticus 10. Leviticus 10 on page 112. I'm going to talk to you for a moment about unauthorized fire. 
Leviticus 10 is on page 112. The Word of God says, I hear the page is flipping, I'll wait. Leviticus 10 says, Now these two fellows, Nadab and Abihu, they were the sons of Aaron. So Aaron was the high priest. You would think they would be good guys. Just because you're the priest's sons doesn't always mean your heart's in the right place. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, they each took his censure, that's the thing that would be used to, uh, in, in worship, and they put fire in it, and they laid incense on it, and they offered unauthorized fire. Circle those words. They offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which He had not commanded them, and the fire came out before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. And so then Moses had to say to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who, near, who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. So, so you have Aaron the high priest, and his sons were Nadab and Abihu, and, and God had prescribed his way of holiness when it came to priestly service, that you were supposed to do it this way and not any old way, or it was a problem. But Nadab and Abihu felt they knew what they were doing. They were already priests. Their dad was the first high priest. I can do this. I am the captain of my fate and the master of my... It's my life. Nadab and Abihu felt they could do whatever on their own terms. They wanted to do it their way. They Frank sinatra the situation. But that unauthorized fire came back and it consumed them. Friends, God has given us a powerful, wonderful, amazing gift of sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife. And we need to understand we play with fire when we play the field. We dabble in things that can quickly rage out of control and burn down everything we've built up over our lifetime. Hebrews 13.4 says this. You might put it in the margin of 1 Corinthians 6. Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor by all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. He's writing to Christians. Which brings us to point eight today. We need to understand that our freedom in Christ doesn't mean, as Christians, that we're immune to temptation. As Christians, we're not immune to temptation. We need to understand that our freedom in Christ does not mean this side of heaven, you and I, are immune to temptation. Remember, Paul's writing Corinthians to Christians. And so it's important to notice Paul doesn't tell them, oh, well, you're above sexual temptation because you're now a Christian, so no, more, no longer will you ever be tempted in lust. Rather, he says, run away. Flee sexual immorality. You see, like it or not, you and I are never going to so arrive spiritually where we never get hungry. All of our lives, we're going to have a temptation towards gluttony whenever food is in front of us. And in like manner, our, our powerful God-given desires regarding intimacy are something we need to be very careful in how we handle. God's counsel in regards to sexual temptation is not flirt, it is flee. God's plan for God's woman or man is not to see how close to the line we can get without getting in trouble 
Let's see how close we can get without falling over. Isn't this thrilling and exhilarating? It is until you fall over. It is until you fall over. There's pleasure in sin for a season. If there wasn't, we wouldn't do it. But the wages of sin is all sin has a price. And he's telling us that sexual sin has a price to your brother, it has a price to yourself, it has a ton of prices, and you need to consider the price, right? We're to avoid situations. The Greek here in this, in this flee sexual morality is a present imperative in the Greek. And so grammatically, the idea being conveyed grammatically is the Christian is commanded, it's not a suggestion, it's a command, it's an imperative, to flee and to flee continually and to keep fleeing every time we find ourselves in that temptation. We're to avoid situations where you know, I'm going to experience heavy temptation if I go here and do this. Whatever your triggers are, don't let the bomb go off. Wherever your triggers are probably needs to be where your fences are high. And your triggers are different than my triggers and the person next to you. But if you've been around for a while, you probably know where your triggers are, right? We're to avoid situations where we know we will experience heavy temptation. We're to flee those situations. This is one of the very rare cases in the Bible where running away is not cowardice, brilliance, biblical wisdom with this unauthorized fire. 2 Timothy 2.2 says, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. You're not just running away from this, you're running to Jesus. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with all those who call on God from a pure heart. And this is not just true for sexual temptation, but it's really true for all powerful temptations. Uh, God says in 1 Corinthians 10, 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. The same fleeing of sexual morality is the same as fleeing idolatry. If there's something that's going to capture your heart, if, you're, if it's you know, money, if it's, if it's your career, if it's whatever that idol is that's bigger than Jesus, you need to run away from that. Don't, don't be taken away in that. If there's something that tempts you to make it more important in your life than Jesus Christ, don't dabble in that. Turn tails and run from that. Now, just as idolatry and sexual immorality have a strong pull in our hearts, the Bible says so too does the love of, of money. It's really interesting. The Bible uses the same language. We see the same advice in 1 Timothy 6.10 regarding the love of money. It says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that many have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Why do we have to flee and fight? Because we must understand that our freedom in Christ does not mean that we are immune the temptation, indeed powerful temptations. This is especially true in the powerful area of sexual temptation, which brings us to point nine today. Point nine is this. We need to understand that God's powerful and good design for a husband and wife to be intimate is something Satan wants to short circuit so that we go haywire. Say that again. 
We need to understand that God's powerful and good design for a husband and wife to be intimate is something Satan wants to short circuit so that our world goes haywire. You can see that in this text. Look at verse 15. But do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take your members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Satan wants to make your life short circuit and go haywire in the very area God gave you as a gift. So when we engage in in, in sexual intimacy with someone who is not our spouse, we take what belongs to God our bodies, our bodies of the Lord, we've been bought with a price, we take something that belongs to God and we give that to someone else. At a basic level, that's theft from God. This is His and I gave it to something besides Him. And so people are very quick to point out in the book of Malachi about a man robbing God in regards to their giving. And they'll go, oh, can a man rob God? And then they'll tell you you need to tithe. But we're very slow to consider what it is we deliver when we have sexual liaisons with someone who's not our God-given helpmeet. Now, sex isn't bad within the confines of God's design. We're to keep the marriage bed, pure, and undefiled. There is no robbing of God when we give ourselves to our God-given helpmeet. No robbing of God in that. Because God has given us the gift of intimacy for that very contingency. And so we're going to see in chapter 7, coming up next week, we spend a few weeks in chapter 7, marital intimacy is a strong help in fighting sexual temptation. It's not the point of marriage, but it is a special blessing in marriage. And this special blessing is intended to strengthen the beautiful union of a man and a woman called by God to be helpmates fit for each other. So we need to understand that God's powerful and good design for a husband and wife to be intimate is something Satan wants to short-circuit and cause your life to go haywire. And that brings us to point 10, our final point on our outline. Point 10 is this. Point 10 is this. We need to understand that sexual sin while equal to all other sins when it comes to judicial weight, has heavier consequences when it comes to temporal ramifications. I'll say that again, then I'm going to explain it. We need to understand that while sexual sin is equal to all sins when it, when it comes to its judicial weight, the Bible also teaches that it has heavier consequences when it comes to temporal ramifications. See, many folks are quick to quote this. They'll say, Don't judge someone just because they sin differently than you. Have you heard that? It's become very popular. Um, And let me tell you, when it comes to judging other people, there's truth in that. There is definitely truth in that. But if that sentiment leads you to conclude that all sin has equal temporal weight today, temporal consequences today, then that is not biblically true. And so we need to say that's true in regards to judgment and judgmentalism. It's not true in the area of consequences. You see, what happens when I do the sin of larceny? You've read the Ten Commandments. Thou shall not... Okay, so it's a a sin. 
We're there? Okay, it's on the ten list, right? You know? The sin of larceny. What happens temporally on a human now level with the sin of larceny? Well, 7-Eleven loses a gumball. Right? You've stolen a gumball. That's what's happened temporally. A gumball has not been paid for. Now, it's still sin. It's the sin of theft. But temporally, a gumball is missing. What about the sin of arson? That's a little different. With the sin of arson, still a sin, right? In the sin of arson, someone loses their homestead. And depending on who's inside, maybe their grandma and grandpa. Do you see a lot more temporal consequence between the larceny of a gumball and the loss of grandma and grandpa? I hope you do. They're both sins. But one has heavier temporal consequences. It is totally true, friends, that all sin, any sin, every sin, all sin separates us from a holy God. God is holy and we are sinners and all sin separates us from a holy God. The Bible declares in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. It doesn't list the sin because any sin will do. Any sin will do. For any and every and all sin leads to death. Romans 3 says, we're all in the same boat on this. I think we have a slide for this. Romans 3.22, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. To all who believe, there is no difference. So there is truth that any sin is equally the same when it comes to separating me from God. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Christ Jesus. To all who believe, there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption in Christ Jesus. Hey friends, did you know this? There is no one righteous No, not one. I need the blood of Jesus just as much as you need the blood of Jesus. And if you don't think you need it, you need it more than I need it because I understand it and I'm already covered in it. James 2 is clear on this. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails on just one point becomes guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. And if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. You see, if I take a rock, and and I have a great big picture window here, and I throw a rock at the window, and it strikes at one point and breaks the window at one point, the whole window is now broken because of the break on just one portion of the pane. And so, friends, All sin is of equal judicial weight, but the Bible teaches that some sins have different temporal consequences on the believer. And so if you murder someone, God offers forgiveness in Jesus if you give repentance and faith in Christ. But do you know what happens after you repent? The murdered person doesn't come back to life, do they? They don't. There's a temporal consequence to your sin, amen? You can be forgiven of that through the blood of Jesus, but you can't make that person that you killed come back to life. That's just how it is. Similarly, an all-knowing, all-wise, almighty God lovingly tells us there's something unique in regards to sexual sin, which is why we must flee sexual immorality for every other sin a person commits outside of his body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now this is interesting. 
Because within the passage, he talks about you know, gluttony and drunkenness and, and other places in this book. And just a few verses prior, he'd spoken about some of those things. Don't those have effects on the body? Yes, they do, but not the same way sexual sin does, according to the Bible. God tells us those sins, while impacting our bodies, are not the same as sexual immorality because uniquely in the human experience, sexual sin is somewhere where we don't just sin with our bodies, we sin against our bodies. And only in that category. There's something unique about sexual sin. It has a destructive power unlike any other temptation you will experience. And friends, I believe that is why Satan is so pernicious and relentless in targeting us in this. Right? Yeah. Because sexual sin is so intimate. Because it is so entangling. Because it is so corrupting. So corrupting on the deepest of human levels. It corrupts us socially, emotionally, relationally, physically, spiritually, neurologically, biochemically. Because of this, brothers and sisters, we need to be especially careful in how we handle, steward, manage our sexuality. Did you know, I was trying to think, of what is sexual, what's our sexuality like? And the thing that came to me was uranium. Used correctly, uranium can power a city. Used incorrectly, it can level a city. Sounds a little bit like sexual temptation and, and sexual intimacy. Used correctly, it can power a city in your marriage. Used incorrectly, it can blow up all those around you. Isn't it interesting that unlike the way Christians teach about sex today. Have you seen how they do that, the modern abstinence curriculums? Paul doesn't say abstain from sinful sexual practices in order to avoid being shamed, pregnant, guilty, infected, addicted, or detected. Instead, Paul says three basic things. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them a member of a prostitute? Never. Number two, he says, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits outside of his body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And here's the third thing he says. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Within you, whom you have from God, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So, glorify God with your body. Friends, we need to understand that sexual sin is, is equal to all other sins when it comes to judicial weight, but we also need to understand there are much heavier consequences, much heavier consequences, much heavier temporal ramifications we're not going to be easily able to escape from if we endeavor to discover that we're smarter than God in this. Eve thought she was smarter than God. And the fruit looked good for eating, and it seemed like it would offer wisdom. And what did it actually offer? Pain and death and separation. Alienation between husband and wife. Alienation between God and man. Alienation between nation and creation and man and his station. Over these past several Sundays in September, we have seen that sexual sin is intoxicating, it is intertwining, and it is enslaving. So we need to flee from it and not flirt with it and stop feeding on it. To those ends, let's pray today.
Lord Jesus, I'm really thrilled that we're done with 1 Corinthians 6. I imagine it was as uncomfortable to listen to as it was to preach. But it was also super practical. We live in modern Corinth. We live in a place where the call of the sexual is all around us all the time. And people think that uh, we can do whatever with our bodies because our bodies don't matter. They, they think that everything is just material and, and there's nothing spiritual. But even the scientists will tell us there's a flood of neurological, biological, chemical reactions that create all kinds of havoc within us and mess with our emotions. And then also even there's a spiritual component that your Bible says, but, but even, even the medical practitioner and the neurologist sees what lights up in our brain. And then the psychologist does studies and is surprised to find that the hookup culture produces not intimacy, but loneliness. Not euphoria, but ultimately depression. And we shouldn't be surprised because there's a way that seems right to man. But it ends in death. And so we ought not go our own way. We ought not lean on our own understanding. We ought to lead on the one who is all-wise, all-knowing, all-good, all-powerful, our creator, sustainer, redeemer, and friend. We ought to lean on the Word of God and not this world that's become godless. So help us to be biblical and not cultural in our thinking about our sexuality. Help us to celebrate what you've given us in the marriage bed. Help us to keep it pure and undefiled, not just in the sheets, but in our head. Help those of us who you have yet to offer a helpmeet to, to be able to offer the members of their body to Jesus and not to unauthorized fire. May we not see our saints consumed by that which is magnetically attractive, but uranium-like destructive. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.